This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Blackouts. HBO getting its first blackout ever after channels pulled uh, at Dish. Let's get into this story. It is among, by the way, everybody, our most read stories, among our most read stories. Yeah, because people want to watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> is that what that was about? I think so. I don't know. I'm not a Game of Thrones person. Sorry. But you, you're you familiar with the I fact know. that it exists, yes. I yes. hope. Yes, 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 yes. Jerry Smith is media reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Do you guys watch Game of Thrones? I have not gotten into it. There's there's so many I shows. Tried. Yeah, it's on my list, uh, but I'm I'm so far behind. I, I don't watch it either, but I know that people are super into it, and oh it God. is appointment television for sure. And was such Jerry Smith a a big driver? Has been such a big driver for HBO among all of its other programming. So this is unprecedented. That HBO has never had to face this before. How did it happen? Yeah, I mean, HBO has been around for over 40 years, and they've never, um, you know, the industry calls it going dark, but essentially they've never been made unavailable on a TV provider before. Uh, but they're going up against Dish, um, and Dish is run by Charlie Ergen, who is uh, a notoriously uh, tough negotiator. Um, I mean, stepping back a little bit, the bigger picture here is that people are not subscribing to pay television the way they used to. They're cutting the cord largely because TV is too expensive. So if you're dish and you're trying to hang on to the subscribers, you're trying to keep your costs down. And part of the way to do that is to drive very hard bargains with programmers, because if your programming costs go up, you have to pass that on to the consumer. So dish has been a very tough negotiator. I mean, prior to this, they, um, Univision was uh, blacked out on Dish and has been for several months, which is costing Univision millions of dollars. And also has a big audience. Yes, huge, uh, huge um, Latino audience for for Univision. And, and a lot of those um, Latino viewers are Dish subscribers. So it's, um, you know, in these cases, both, both sides lose. Um, you know, the programmers lose subscriber fees. The, um, you know, Dish is going to potentially lose customers. Um you know, HBO would is already reminding um, its subscribers that there's other ways you can get HBO. You can get HBO Now, which is a streaming service. You can get it through other TV providers like Amazon and Hulu. Um, so that gives them a little bit of uh, an alternative way to reach people now. Um, who, what, observers of what's going on, who do they think has the upper hand? I mean, obviously, Dish does by kind of yanking HBO, I guess, off the air. But who does really kind of have the upper hand in this ultimately, right? Because as you say, it's kind of chicken and egg. Like, you know, you, you want Dish because they've got all of these content providers and yet HBO needs the distribution, or right, right? I mean, this is important to them. So I'm just curious, who's got the upper hand? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question because on the one hand, HBO could say, you know, we don't need the TV, these pay TV companies because we have our channel available online. However, they rely a lot on the pay TV companies to market uh, HBO to their subscribers. I mean, you know, that's basically free advertising. Um, You know, Dish would handle the customer service, a lot of that. Um, You know, it's kind of the big question right now in the TV business. Who is better positioned, the distributors or the programmers? Um, You know, Dish is, is... vulnerable in in large part because they don't sell you internet service. I mean, you look at other companies that 
our paid TV providers, Comcast, Charter. Even if people are cutting the cord and not subscribing to cable TV, you still get your internet from these companies. Right. Um, Dish is just a satellite TV company, and a lot of its value is actually uh, wrapped up in this wireless spectrum that they own. So they're, um, you know, they have a service called Sling TV, which has a couple dozen channels for 20 or 30 bucks a month. Its growth is starting to slow now. The traditional satellite TV business um, is slowing down and losing subscribers. So, um, you know, Dish has really been driving a really hard bargain to try and keep its programming costs down. HBO, meanwhile, I mean, they've now are part of a much larger company. They're owned by AT&T as part of the AT&T Time Warner deal. Um, you know, so they have uh, sort of like Comcast, they have both distribution and programming now, which um, sort of uh, hedges your bets in, in an environment that's changing very quickly. So, Jerry, just while we have you here, I want to put you on the spot a little bit. A, a story that's obviously getting a lot of attention on the Bloomberg Terminal as well. We talked about it just as we were coming on air. Megyn Kelly won't be rehired by Fox uh, after leaving the Today Show. That's according to uh, Lachlan Murdoch and some comments he made. Not a surprise, I, I would imagine. What what happens next in this saga? And can I just say plans change? Yeah, so it, it's just to recap. I mean, so she left Fox um, uh, over a year ago to, and went to NBC, and it was a very high-profile move because, she, you know, her star had really risen when she was at Fox. Um, you know, and, it, and I think by most accounts, it was a bad fit for her at NBC. I mean, she was uh, very much known as being sort of a hard charging sort of prosecutor. And, and you know, the NBC show, uh, she was trying to sort of reimagine herself and remake her image as being sort of a, a softer morning show personality. Um, you know, it clearly was a bad fit. Uh, so now, I mean, where we are now is, you know, her lawyer is negotiating with NBC uh, about an exit package that, you know, could be, um, you know, she could leave the, the network in a matter of days. Right. Um, and the big questions are, is she going to get paid out the remainder of her contract? Is there going to be a clause saying she can't work anywhere else? Um, you know, I think people will say she needs, she's probably going to lay low for a little bit before she ends up at any other TV network. And Lachlan could be negotiating. She may too. end up at Fox News someday, but <laughs> it, his comments today certainly suggest that he's not um, interested. Fox News isn't interested in hiring her for now. So. Right now, at least. All right, Jerry Smith, media reporter for Bloomberg. Always great to get your perspective on the world of media. Jason and I talking about uh, the midterms, of course, coming up, and there's a lot of things, wages, immigration, and, of course, health care, among probably the most important issues on voters' minds. Let's get some thoughts on the latter, health care specifically. Dr. Paul Keckley is managing editor of the Keckley Report, former director of Deloitte Healthcare Solutions in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York City. And you and I were just reminiscing about, I was saying that one of my first big stories that I ever did for business television years ago was explaining what managed care was. Yeah. And this is when Hillary Clinton, under the Clinton administration, was trying to rework it. And it actually predates that by 20 years, <laughs> back to 1972, the HMO Act. That's right. That's right. So let's talk to let's let's get let's fast forward here uh, and the elections. What what are some of the most important issues that you think are going to be on voters' minds? And 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 take it from a partisan, you know. Democrats, Republicans, yeah. what issues we might see put forth? Well, the polls say it's the first issue to Democratic voters and number two to first Republican to voters. Yeah, two. the wow. number one issue to Democrats, number two to uh, would-be Republican voters. Independence, it vacillates between one or two. Um, and then one being you, immigration, is that the other? 
To a hardcore Republican, yeah, yeah. immigration. Uh, generally, it would have been the economy or jobs. Right. And then if you'd had any kind of foreign conflict, that would always pop up. But we have a, a period of relative stability yeah. in both of those areas. So now the voter pops health care above. And, and so for health care, what is it drilled down for us? What is it that makes it such a big issue for people? Is it cost? Is it access? What is it? All of the above? Coverage um, depends on who you ask, but the four topics would be: um, How am I going to be covered? The context is me and my doctor, me and my insurance, me and my hospitals. Yeah. So if you have a pre-existing condition, 102 million people have a pre-existing condition. Wow. Then you're hearing about all this stuff, mm-hmm. and you're wondering: is, is, Am I going to have coverage? Apparently, I had it under the Affordable Care Act. I might not, under a Republican approach to that. And then you take it a little further. If somebody diagnosed you as a diabetic, you're among three out of four who know they're diagnosed as a diabetic, and you don't know you're among the ones that are not even diagnosed yet. I want to jump in because looking at some of the notes that we got uh, ahead of uh, you coming on, you know, that this idea of better nutrition so that we don't have so many diabetics yeah. or those that are in a situation where they're pre-diabetes. Like, how do we get to, with government involvement or not, I yeah. don't know, a better healthcare system where we are healthier individuals and we're not having to go see our doctor so often? Well, this is complicated, but since you've mentioned diabetics and pre-diabetics, there are 84 million pre-diabetics. 12% of them know that. In the U.S.? In the U.S. The rest don't. Uh, But generally, people know that if you eat right and you exercise, you probably will be healthier than if you don't. Uh, But then it becomes a matter of your own circumstances. So in the Affordable Care Act, the only circumstance that was specific was if you smoke, you're going to pay more than if you don't. There's nothing in the Affordable Care Act that says if you wait more than you should. Mm -hmm. So do folks find their way on their own to better ways of eating to uh to i found myself going to a low carb mm-hmm. route to to get healthier i'm probably a pre-diabetic and i've found my way to that atkins model yeah. um so most people don't that's the bottom line most people don't know how to navigate beyond the intellectual acceptance if i eat right and exercise yeah but and it's always the but, but right. I'm too busy, or I'm a mom with kids, or you name it. And fair enough, but I just think it changes the way we right. think about health It really does, and, and it's, it's simple but complicated. And so what happens, so let's play out this scenario, and, yeah. and I'm asking you this in part because you are deeply involved in the Affordable Care Act, yeah. you know, advising mm-hmm. the government from a private sector uh, perspective. In 30 seconds, (laughs) tell us what happens if it goes as people expect. Democrats retake the House. What is status? Is it status quo? What's the next step, especially with the ACA? If the Democrats take the House, then you'll see um, some improvements in the Affordable Care Act, but it doesn't go away. Right. If Republicans keep. 
Well, if the Republicans keep the Senate and lose the House, then you'll still have the Affordable Care Act. It will still be the law. It'll be harder for them to get rid of it. Um, And the majority of people now support it more than those that don't. So it's going to be fix and repair rather than repeal and replace. I like that. I feel like you've said probably said that before. (laughs) (laughs) Come back at some point because we'd love to talk more about healthcare and medical issues. Really good stuff, Uh, Dr. Paul Keckley. He's managing editor of the Keckley Report, former director of Deloitte Healthcare Solutions, in our Bloomberg and director broker studio. I feel like we are talking about healthcare all the time here. All the time. Right, so we always like to look at car sales yes. as a key economic indicator. It's been it's something something we can hang on to in these yeah, volatile times. Absolutely. Uh, and one of our favorite, favorite people to break this down with is Rebecca Lindland. She is executive analyst at Kelly Blue Book, uh, joining us on the phone from Greenwich, Connecticut. She also, and I have to say this, I bring this up every time, she has the best Twitter handle, Rebel Car Chick. Rebecca, great to be with you again. So October, auto sales, what do you make of it? Well, thanks for having me on, Jason. As always, it's a pleasure. Uh, you know, it actually came in better than the Cox Automotive economists forecasted. We were looking at about 17.1 million units, which is an annual selling rate. And it actually came in at 17.1 million units. So, I'm sorry, 17.6. We were forecasting 17.1. So, the Consumer held up. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that when we look at some of these economic indicators, uh, you know, interest rates are climbing, and yet at the same time, consumer confidence is at, you know, some of the highest that we've seen in decades. And that's one of the reasons why I think that we're continuing to see strong sales. What's going on, though, Rebecca? Because is it because consumers need cars? Is it because there's lots of incentives that are making it, you know, the purchases uh, a little bit cheaper? Like, what's What's going on that's driving it? Or is it just economic momentum? You know, Carol, it's a couple of things. There's a lot of really great fresh product in the showrooms. And one of the things that I always encourage people when I'm talking to them about buying new cars is keeping in mind those safety features. There has been so many advancements in safety features just in the last few years that it's sometimes just worth kind of biting the bullet and saying, okay, you know what, I'm going to buy a new car because it has the latest safety features for myself and my family. The other thing is that, you know, we're continuing to see a consumer that says, I've got a job. I feel good about this. Maybe I do need a new car. We still have a very old average fleet, you know, of over 11 years old. So there's still a lot of replacement demand out there. And when you combine that with consumer confidence and a really, really low unemployment rate, people are going to be in showrooms. And so how much do you worry about this? How much do you worry about these numbers sort of going forward, projecting out, uh, especially as we start to hear people talk about, well, rising rates and maybe we start to slow down a little bit uh, here? What's the wall of worry if there is one? Yeah, no, there, it definitely is. You know, we're kind of in uncharted territory when it comes to the economy. And so it's something that we're watching really carefully. Uh, you know, we're, we are starting to also see uh, some 
some people not being able to get approved for loans because mm. bank standards are still very tight. So that's something to keep in mind. You know, people also tend to buy at the top of their affordability meter when it comes to, you know, loan to value. And so they'll kind of max that number out. And so, you know, they could potentially price themselves out with these higher interest rates. So there's definitely some concerns and some clouds on the horizon. At the same time, you know, a lot of the economic indicators are very, very good. I think housing is also something that we watch quite closely, and and we're keeping an eye on on new housing starts as well. Hey, why aren't we seeing uh, the auto sales? I mean, the auto uh, stocks actually go up. And I know General Motors. Let's be fair; they were up about nine percent yesterday on their earnings. But I'm not seeing a lot of momentum uh, in those share prices. Uh, is there something that we need to be concerned about? You know what, Carol? This is why I'm not a Wall Street analyst. Yeah, no, that's fair. But I mean, I never quite understand what they're looking for. Fair (laughs) enough. Tell me something. We just hey, listen though. We love talking to you because you do know this world and you've known it for a long time. Uh, So it's always fun to get your insight. When you look at it, we've got about a minute left here. You know, when you look at what's going on in the auto industry, what are the stories that you think? uh, What are the trends, developments that you think are really fascinating that you think investors should be aware of? Well, I think they certainly should be aware of electric vehicles. We're starting to see regulations that make the make the manufacturer bring out these vehicles, but they're actually getting better and better than ever. We're also starting to con- or continuing to see the millennials really come into the marketplace and younger buyers as well. And so I think there's a lot of momentum in the industry. I think that we're starting to see some really good management decisions, some really responsible balance sheet management. Management. And so those are things that I think the stock market should should appreciate. And how dynamic will the market share be among the big electric uh, car players uh, going into 2019? <laughs> Only got about 25 seconds left. Yeah, well, Tesla is definitely going to be facing competition. Um, I'm going to be driving the Audi e-tron in a couple of weeks Ah. overseas, and that will be a really interesting vehicle to check out. The Jaguar I-Pace is doing incredibly well. So we're starting to see some really, really exciting uh, utility vehicles in the electric vehicle space. And let's not forget, of course, there's the Rolls-Royce SUV. I'm just saying if you have some (laughs) spare time, uh, Rebel Car Check, uh, check, that would be really fun. Rebecca Lindland, thank you so much. Uh, Always fun, always insightful. Executive uh, analyst over at Kelly Blue Book uh, joining us on the phone from Greenwich, Connecticut. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Olivia Engel is with us, Chief Investment Officer of Active Quanta Equity Strategies over at State Street Global Advisors. $2.7 trillion in uh, assets under management. Uh, Olivia joining us on the phone from Boston. Olivia, nice to have you here on this Thursday. And you're coming to us after, when it comes to the equity markets, a really tough October, the worst in, I think, about a decade or so. And then you've got now the S&P 500 up three days in a row. We haven't seen this in some time. Tell us about the market trade right now and what kind of stands out for you. 
Oh, thanks a lot, Carol. Well, actually, we really like the healthcare sector at the moment. Um, when it comes to any sector, we're looking for companies that are really reasonably valued. We're looking for steady and stable growth and high-quality growth, um, and we're looking for catalysts and improving trends. Um, but one of the things that we've really highlighted and uh, think is important to consider with healthcare and actually the market overall is how we incorporate intangibles into valuing these t- types of assets. And and how do you do it? Well, and well, let let's start with what, what are the what, what, yeah. what are the intangibles? <laughs> how do you identify them? So intangibles can be all sorts of things. They can be patents. They can be human capital. They can be brand value. Uh, they can be uh, capitalizing research and development in research and development intensive industries like um, like healthcare, particularly pharmaceuticals and biotech. Uh, it can be things like the drug pipeline development in uh, biotech firms. So these things are all such a growing part of uh, the global equity market's composite value that it's really important to take them into consideration. Well, and it's interesting to hear you talk about this. We had a guest on earlier uh, in the show, a guy who's been doing this, a, a medical doctor who's been doing this for a long time, has a newsletter now. Is a uh, southerner, which is why you is kind a of southerner, also like exactly. Him. Not not from as far south as <laughs> Olivia Engel is, but, um, <laughs> but, you know, one of the things that he was talking about is this idea that this is absolutely top of mind for every human being. Uh, mm-hmm. in America, and we were talking to him ahead of the midterm election. So, you know, I wonder, you know, how this industry changes as it's clearly not going away. I mean, health obviously is more and more uh, dynamic, but how do you invest against all those intangibles, I guess, <laughs> now that you've identified them for us? Well, that's right. I mean, all things into perspective, health, the healthcare sector has had the great, one of the greatest amounts of secular growth mm. over the last eight to ten years. Um, in the post-global financial crisis environment, healthcare and technology were basically the star sources of earnings growth. Up until around 2016, when healthcare kind of flattened off as the rest of the equity market started to turn around. So healthcare kind of was forgotten a little bit as it was going through a lot of volatility around the political environment and, and, and scandals and so forth. But now we're really seeing the earnings start to improve a lot in the healthcare sector uh, overall, and we see really good pockets of value in the, um, the healthcare providers and also in uh, pharmaceuticals. Well, that okay, because that's what I was curious. How do you want to play it? So you're ta- talking about the managed care providers. That's how you would suggest investors buy into this sector, get exposure, as well as what, big pharma? Uh, some of the big pharma, yes, because uh, we see there's really good value there and, and, and a stability around some of their earnings that's where scandals are behind them. On the providers, there's a lot more value available there than in the equipment and um, um, supplies part of the market, which is actually very, um, very expensive. And and you can see what happened in October was the providers, um, uh, the equipment uh, healthcare segment really had one of the largest declines around minus 11% for MSCI World um, equipment stocks through October. So, Pharma and providers were only down around three or four percent in October. Managed care providers, though, as a, a overall, uh, as an industry group in the S and P or sub industry group, uh, Jason's up about eighteen percent this year. Wow! <laughs> All right, so let's talk a little tech, if we can, Olivia. Obviously, tech very much front of mind this week with some big earnings, not the least of which is Apple reporting on just about thirty-five minutes from now. Uh, especially given all the, shall we say, enthusiasm around tech so far this year. How do you play that sector? Yeah, well, we've seen it as 
in general, in the software segment, way too expensive and way too volatile to mm. play in in most cases. I mean, there's a lot of exuberance that has been, been built into that segment for a long time. Some of the more, uh, shall we say, boring parts of the tech segment we've found very attractive. Uh, the Some of the hardware and, and electronics um, manufacturers we've found to have a lot more value, and, and that's where we've seen... Um, our positions grow as the opportunities have, have risen. All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Olivia, thank you so much for your time. Olivia Engel, she is Chief Investment Officer of Active Quant Equity Strategies over at State Street Global Advisors uh, on the phone from Boston on this Thursday. $2.7 trillion in assets under management. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.